Welcome to Funny Old World, a podcast hosted by me, Juliet Kinsman, and Simon London. It's us sharing entertaining conversations which make it easier to better understand the causes, symptoms, and hopefully solutions to the climate emergency with a little much-needed laughter. Because there is a climate emergency. In each episode, we'll be discussing serious topical sustainability stories and chat to some of the world's most thought-provoking experts. And because, let's face it, Everyone's feeling a little sustainability fatigue, so we also need to know the facts. And goodness knows we need a little humour in our eco-anxiety-riddled lives. Juliet is a journalist and a sustainability expert, author and travel editor, and I'm a media pundit, but most importantly intellectually curious, which hopefully means I'll be asking questions that you, the listeners, want to know the answer to as much as I do. Each episode, we're going to tackle a complex topic, weigh up the trade-offs, and hopefully empower all to make better decisions when striving for impactability. These conversations were made possible by Weaver, a sustainability management system based on the framework of the long run. Go to weaver.earth to find out more. Hey, JK. So last time, we quite literally spoke rubbish. And I did enjoy all that stuff about waste and recycling. Who knew it was going to be so much fun? Um, but today I'm very impressed with how you titled this chapter when you emailed me. It's called Economics, but you've put a hyphen between the O and the N. So it's Economics. I like that very much. I'm guessing that means that we're going to be discussing money, business, finance. Yes, eco, and we're going to be discussing nomics. That's Indeed. right. You know, you'll hear a lot of people say that in order to tackle the climate emergency, we really need to overhaul the financial sector and all systems linked to that. What does that mean to you? Well, it's bullshit talk to me. It's people saying about overthrowing capitalism and stuff like that. But when you say financial systems, I immediately think of <laughs> they have this footage that they always use in documentaries in the UK. And it's basically people in the city with massive great phones and uh, pointing their fingers up and computers and everything. It's basically somebody on the trading floor. So I always think financial systems, I think the city and everything that's linked to that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, money does have a big part in, in, in the ticking of the world. What we're talking about is eco, ecological, but definitely also it's, well, economical significance. And yes, I'm afraid we are going to be tackling the conversation around Capitalism. Knew it was going to be this. Knew it was going to be. You basically, <laughs> you basically re reimagine want me it. To, oh, right, reimagining. Yeah. We're not smashing capitalism. Yeah, because I, I haven't made a placard. I don't have sensible shoes on. I can't be walking down the street. Uh, my voice is hurting. I can't be yelling, chanting slogans. I'm up for changing systems and the way things work, but just kind of from the comfort of this podcast studio. You know. We, as with everything, we look at it as an individual and in terms of what big industry and, and government should be doing. This is going to be about being more eco in terms of us individually being more economical. And, you know, there's a cost of living crisis happening. So that's important. Uh, but before I think before we get stuck into the bigger systemic change things and the business case for being more economical, let's 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 think about how being greener can actually save cash on a personal level. OK, so this is basically what... I can do what we can do as individuals. Yeah. So you're going to now try and convince 
me or tell me that sustainability sustainable is a cost saving exercise if I want it to be. Sure. I mean, you know, from from a professional perspective, I'll always come from the hotel industry and I, I work in the travel sector. And and we talk about cost efficiencies as being savings upfront because of CapEx. So that's that's money invested in in fixed physical assets. And that's the long term saving. That can also play a role in, in how you live your life at home. But look, we'll, we'll get to that. If I just tell you my personal story, I personally, I grew up with my grandparents and they'd lived through the war. And they, of course, lived by the adage, make or mend and, and also waste not, want not. Okay. All right. That, that's very cute. Very, very sweet. Um, imagining you and your grandparents all huddled around the wireless listening to Churchill. <laughs> do. Oh, no, they lived through the war, not you. <laughs> it's all very post-war and ration book then going. It is, it is. But it's also just about being really sensible, I think, and just not wasting. And and my grandfather, you know, he just, he, they, they didn't waste anything. They 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 planned everything well. And we just lived life in, well, there was certainly a more frugal way and a more responsible way. But just think about, you know, when I was allowed to have a bath, I was allowed to have about two inches of hot water because they they were mindful of how much that would cost. And that translates, as we know, also into saving the use of energy. So there's definitely an overlap between being cost conscious and being sensible and economical and also being more environmentally friendly. I've talked before in the carbon episode, the second episode, about how a fifth of the UK's emissions comes from heating and cooling buildings. So if you're going to start draft proofing your home by closing all those gaps around windows and door frames, let's say, or hanging heavy curtains, adding draft excluders, you'll also be saving money and you'll be more climate friendly. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see how that would work. Yeah. Um, and I bet you like this one. Fit a smart meter. If you know, when it comes to your energy, you'll feel really motivated when you start looking at all those readings, just like a fitness app. I'm obsessed with our smart meter. I really am. I think it's sort of taken away from uh, my um, my step. Th- my what's it called? What's it called? Pedometer. But you're, yes. you, are you on a step obsessive? Where you just... Well, yeah, because during lockdown, at the beginning, couldn't go out that much. So um, I began to look at the smart meter <laughs> to see. <laughs> that Instead. Became, yeah. Yeah. No, but they are really good. They are really good. And it did make me think. I sort of, um, you know, boiled less water in the kettle and was yelling at people if they was more than four minutes in the shower. So and, that's good. And I'll bet you avoided using a tumble dryer, as we know. You see, this is a perfect example um, we want things to be convenient, quick, easy, throw everything into the tumble dryer, but actually just take those few extra minutes hanging all your well, clothes, air dry them on a washing line or a rack. And, uh, you know, especially when the radiators are on, just think how much cheaper that is and how much less energy you use. I'm not going to take my clothes to Iraq. I knew that. Well, as soon as I said it, it sounded like it. Well, of course, I'd say Iraq. So, <laughs> King's but you English. saying that I've never owned a tumble dryer. We never had a tumble dryer like your like your grandparents. Vera and Eric, shout out to Vera and Eric. Hey, Vera and Eric, hope you're listening to this up there. Um, oh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we've all never owned a tumble dryer, so always had one of those clothes horse thingies and always chucking yeah, um, yeah, clothes yeah. out in the garden to dry. So, yeah, yeah, you know, and this is this is the thing. I struggle. I spent a lot of time in America where I grew up, and of course, they're all about convenience and the way they live and. You know, I sometimes look at my family members who I think you think you share the same values and they're driving around in their like crazy diesel guzzling Jeeps, throwing things in and out of tumble dryers, air conditioning on, windows open. Honestly, it's painful. I really, really look at all of that and think it's just not sensible. I'm Charlie Cotton in in the last episode looked at our carbon footprints 
And he talked about how changing or tweaking our diets, eating you know fewer animal products, avoiding food waste. Again, this reduces our carbon footprint. But again, these are lots of ways to also bring down how much you're spending on your life. Meat, it can be very expensive. Certainly high welfare, good quality meat. We don't need to eat that much. So it's, you know, not buying too much, not having leftovers. If we go to a restaurant, not being shy about asking for a doggy bag. I grew up in New York. You know, we're always like, can I get a doggy bag? That kind of thing. Is that what you used to say? Uh, Hey, it's that little English kid coming in again with her American accent. Um, (laughs) I'm Canadian in actual fact, so neither of those works. All right. (laughs) Um, a lot of what you're saying is obviously common sense, isn't it? Yeah. It's sort of back to your, when I was worried about waste management, you said, you know, just remember, refuse, re- reuse, repurpose. These things seem to be look around and see what differences you can make and it will have a direct effect on your on your pocket. So I think, I mean, it's great to think about all these little hacks that we can do, but it's also important to to think of the biggest levers that can be pulled and trying to work out, well, systems change. And my inspiration is someone called Zita Cobb, who is over in Canada. Okay. And what's her specialized subject? Well, what's her story? Well, she's an innkeeper, actually. An innkeeper? She, yeah. She created Fogo Island Inn, which is actually a hotel on a tiny island in the Atlantic Ocean, just below the Arctic Circle. And as she watched their whole industry, fishing industry, the whole economy evaporate through, um, you know, cod sanctions back in the early 90s, she thought, I have to do something to change this. She went on to study business and she actually went on to retire in her 50s from a career in fiber optics. She was at that point the highest paid woman in Canada. So she knew a little bit about how to... uh, make business work. And she ended up and she has reinvigorated an entire community. Hi, Zita. It's so great to be speaking to you. Can you just introduce yourself to our listeners, please? I am Zita Cobb and I am uh, on Fogo Island, uh, where my work is and my heart is. And I'm going to talk about financial systems. And if you want to talk about financial systems, then we better not start with talking about financial systems because it's not the most important thing. Well, it is the most important thing when it's broken, and it is. What should we be thinking about when it comes to creating eco-friendly systems that work, Zeta? We have to start with the most important thing, which, of course, is place. And then after place comes place. And after that comes place. Because place holds nature and culture. And culture is nothing more than a human response to a place. And that place... And those places hold our relationships with each other, hold our relationships with history and the people who came before, and actually hold our relationships with the ones that are not yet arrived. And so now we can talk about the financial system. How do we build a financial system that supports people in the places that we live? And the financial system has three very distinct kinds of economic actors. It has obviously governments that you know set the framework for how we conduct our financial lives and we have markets or businesses that go about their work to make and produce and get us the things we need and it has another economic actor that often gets forgotten which is community and so these three groups of economic actors need to come together if the economy is going to work to support people in the places they live in this crazy time that really feels like a game of environmental roulette things have gotten out of balance among the three pillars 
And I don't think it's too much to say that governments are underfunctioning or have underfunctioned and are, are trying to, I think, catch up, I'd like to think, uh, in laying out a clearer playing field. Markets have overfunctioned and you know run away with the spoon, practically. And communities have been hollowed out and left a little bit high and dry. What's our role in all of this, Sita? How do we actively participate in creating something new? If we can shift just a tiniest little bit and just put the word community into economic development and into financial planning, I think we'd have the makings of an economy that supports life in places. Communities are made up of people, individual people. Each individual person is an economic actor. And so if we all got up in the morning and thought about the financial flows in and out of our lives, money comes into our lives, money goes out, and just start to map, where does my money go? Can you explain to us how that would work practically, Zita? I mean, I went to the the grocery store yesterday to buy apples and it's, you know, it's apple season in Canada. And for the life of me, I couldn't find a, a Canadian apple. Like, so obviously something's not working with the, now you think about the apple, that I did not buy because it came from super far away that has a carbon implication. And it has a financial implication because you know my money would have gone where I didn't want it to go. So just in everything we spend, keep the money as close to the ground as you possibly can. Now, we practice something that in my utopian version of the world called economic nutrition labeling. We have a certification mark for something called an economic nutrition label. It looks a lot like the label you'd see on food telling you what's in that cereal you just bought. And this label of ours simply tells you where the money goes. You're going to spend a dollar. This is where your money is. How much went to the people who worked in providing that good or service. This is how much went into marketing or advertising or, you know, or, or assembly. And then we also tell you geographically where the money goes, how much stayed in this local place, how much went to the next nearest place and on and on it goes. This is not that hard to do. Uh, we just need to start thinking about every dollar we spend as if we're voting, because we are voting. We're voting for the system that produced that thing, and that gives that system more air. And so let's vote for systems that support place. Okay, I can see how that would work in theory, but would it really work in practice against so many vested interests? I always love the quote by Stanislav Lech, which is, every snowflake in an avalanche pleads not guilty. I don't know where the bad guys are because if, you know, to solve this problem, it'd be certainly much easier if we could just go find those bad guys and get them to smarten up. But it's not the way it works. We're all implicated in this mess and this, this tangle that we have created. So if we have a bunch of knots to untie. We just have to untie them one by one. You just have to think about where does that money go? Who controls it? Who gets to keep how much? That's what it is. It's the sum of all of that. And so when money ends up being concentrated, and this is the world we live in. We live in a world where the real economy has been dwarfed by the financial economy, which is the economy where money moves around just for the purpose of making money. And sometimes in that financial economy where you're just trying to make money, of course it interacts with the real economy. It uses the resources, it uses the assets of nature. In North America, if you go out to buy a house, quite likely you're competing with some giant pool of money which is not buying a house because, you know, they need a place to live. They're buying the house because they want to make more money. So this is the kind of, and money has no will of its own. It only has our will. So if you work for one of these big companies in the investment economy, 
you need to ask yourself every morning, like, what am I asking this money to do? And how is it impacting place and nature and culture? Are you optimistic that we can convince people to look at where and how they spend their money and try and keep it within their community? I don't know. Optimistic is too simple a word. I'll tell you what I am is I am intentional. And if I remain intentional, then I will be active. And if I'm active, I'm not throwing snowballs at people in an avalanche. I'm actually trying to (laughs) stop the avalanche. I always love chatting to Zita Cobb. No wonder she's been awarded a member of the Order of Canada in recognition for her social entrepreneurship. I would urge you to check out her economic nutrition certification mark. So it looks a lot like the nutrition label you'd see on, on food labels, you know, on a cereal packet. Every business and product should have one of these detailing where every cent goes. And also, she really, she helped me by suggesting I should read a book by economist Raghuram Rajan. He's the author of The Third Pillar, The Revival of Community in a Polarized World. And that really illustrates a lot of what she was talking about, how society's pillars are government, business, and the much neglected community. She's fascinating, isn't she? Uh, I like pretty much everything she has to say. But we're going to need help getting to what she's talking about. You know, if we're going to dismantle and change the current financial systems, then we sort of need a change in government. And that feels really difficult, especially in the current climate. I know that it can be done. We heard Dyson Chi in an earlier episode and how he and his fellow young activists lobbied the Hawaiian government. But I feel that we're so addicted to politics where everyone has to be a character. So you have to have a Trump or you have to have a Johnson or anything that politicians or people like Zeta Cobb who really do want to change things don't get a look in. I had a really good expression the other day. You know, we keep hearing this cliche, build back better, particularly post-pandemic. Yeah. They apply it to all different, you know, all different sentiments. And I love the idea of someone said to me, no, we need to build forward better. We need to build systems that are completely new and they consider all stakeholders. So I, I don't know, you know, in this conversation, people talk in capitalism or in the, in the private sector, we talk about shareholders. What we need is more stakeholders considered in every business decision. And um, yeah, I think it's just really considering how every decision made isn't just showing responsibility to those who profit, but those who are affected by the results of these decisions. So something that's really interesting in the business world, have you seen how MasterCard, so as a business, they made a decision that their employees uh, would get their bonuses based on their carbon footprint. So it's this interplay between the business world making decisions. We keep talking about this. It's a green thread that runs through all of these topics is incentivizing people, but just linking profit, profit for whom, monetary profit, to profit for how does it benefit people and nature. But one of the things that we've touched on before where business is concerned is this idea of greenwashing. How do we know when a business is being genuine and when it's just saying something because it believes that is the right thing to say? Do you know what's so funny? And I'm going to say this to listeners because go to Google and Google the companies that are best for ESG, so environmental social governance. Okay, see what the results are, what comes up. And then have a Google of the companies that are the worst for greenwash. And it's so funny, they're often the same. No so the, way. So the ones that often have a really good narrative and look convincing are actually the perpetrators of greenwash. But look, it's, it's, 
It's interesting. What we need is business to want to be more sustainable because it makes financial sense. And I think the best person to talk to about that is is Julie Cheatham. She's one of the co-founders of a new sustainability management system, which we talk about, Weaver. I'm really excited to speak to her. Um, Thanks, Juliet. So I'm Julie Cheatham. I'm one of the founding members of Weaver. And before we started Weaver, I have a history in banking and financial services and management consulting that led me to tourism and how to run tourism businesses better. That's what I've been doing for the past 10 years is trying to make sure we run our businesses in balance. What are the advantages of running a sustainable business, Julie? And thinking about how to run your business sustainably is really smart because it helps you to see your business through to the next 50 years and to leave something great for your kids to run one day and for your future generations to be part of. Unless we take a longer term view and we keep sacrificing for sort of short term, perhaps commercial gains, we're not going to have businesses that endure. And business or commercial sustainability and endurance is as important as energy, waste, water, you know, socioeconomic growth. Julie, what was it about tourism that made you think, hey, there's a real opportunity here to help the sector be more eco-friendly? In tourism, we're not great at looking at our businesses from a 100-year or a 50-year perspective. We're always looking to the next season, our forward bookings. And sometimes that short-termism can force us to make trade-off decisions. So we've created Weaver, which you, you mentioned earlier, and that's really to help businesses look at the balanced scorecard of what they're doing in the tourism sector and make sure that their commercial decisions are are driving forward the commercial viability of their business, but also that they're never extractive or exploitative or going to unduly cannibalize their opportunities for success in the future because they're kind of messing their own backyard up. Julie, how cost effective is the whole exercise of being sustainable in the travel sector? Because, well, we tend to think eco options are more expensive. So the focus on energy, waste and water, certainly in the 90s and the 2000s, when I was cutting my teeth as a a consultant, that was all around cost savings. You know, whether you were in a bank or a factory, implementing your ISO uh, lean manufacturing processes, it was all about savings. It wasn't about saving the planet. But what we know is that by focusing on our resource consumption and doing simple things like cleaning air conditioning filters, shutting down appliances that aren't being used, looking into different kinds of refrigeration gases and which is best for your property, Um, looking at an obsolescence plan where you are bringing in more energy efficient appliances. This can save up to 30% of your energy costs in a year. And typically after your wage bill, energy is the second highest cost that a hotel or a lodge will have. So the potential for savings even if you just want to look at this from a purely commercial perspective, is is really big. Now, the travel industry is known for employing lots of people. So what role do they all play when a business embraces a sustainable policy? When we think about sustainable businesses, if we're only thinking about energy, waste and water, we're really missing a trick because outstanding staff is also one of the most commented features on TripAdvisor. No, this is where looking after your community of internal staff and their well-being really pays off. Think Another thing around sustainability that is an overlooked opportunity is the innovation opportunity. So when you have your whole team engaged on a journey of improvement, like sustainability is when you embrace it as a business, you're all looking for ways to do things better 
every day. And that leads to smarter, cheaper, more efficient ways of running your business. A lot of times these amazing ideas can bubble up from the ground and we don't make allowance for that. So having a sustainability framework that your whole team can engage in can be an amazing catalyst. What's the most valuable piece of advice you give to your clients who are on this journey? I think we can't improve anything that we don't understand. To understand something, we need data. Um, you know, in industrial engineering, we say what gets measured gets done. So unless we have the data to really, really understand our impacts, and every business has positive impacts and negative impacts. You know, even the world's most sustainable businesses still have negative impacts. They use water or they use energy. But we want to absolutely measure all of those things and amplify the good and put plans in place to mitigate the negative impacts so that we can keep getting better and better. Sustainability is not about, you know, we will be a zero footprint by next week, Tuesday. It's just not durable. It's actually a long-term game and it's a series of small steps that you're taking in the right direction that cumulatively will get you to a better place and will be better for the planet and all of the people and cultures that are, you know, in contact with your business. One of the great benefits of this podcast series is we do take you to countries all over the world. And we've just been to South Africa to chat to Julie Cheatham. She is behind Weaver, full disclosure. I have worked with Julie and she is someone who inspires me with just so much science and knowledge and genuinely creating the sustainability platform Weaver has been what, well, certainly the travel industry has been crying out for, but we need to be measuring, measuring, measuring data and setting, you know, really key sustainability targets and goals. I love how both our guests today have been evangelical about people power. So when Zita was talking, she was talking about us being custodians of place and really, really respecting culture. But actually, one, one of the most neglected aspects of culture globally has always been indigenous peoples. Now, I, this is something you wouldn't necessarily instinctively link to the economy or financial conversation. But indigenous people, they might only make up 5% of the world's population. They're actually responsible for around a quarter of the world's land, and within that, 80% of its biodiversity. So their role in conservation and looking after nature has never been so vital. And what's really interesting is now they're calling out a lot of these sort of big companies. They're really looking at them and saying, you know, you need to help us look after nature. They're pointing the finger at all the big guys saying, you're taking our rare earth minerals, whether it's Apple taking products for their computers, you can't do that. So I think it's important, again, to look at the world holistically and think about this, you know, all people are, are affected by all business decisions. In terms, though, of sort of big businesses getting away and doing shortcuts to doing environmental harm, who are the people who are going to be censuring them? Who are the, is it ultimately going to be the consumers who turn around and say, we don't want to use your products because we see you as the bad guys? Or is there going to be kind of like a world police who come out and say, actually, Brazil, we're fining you X amount for doing all the de this deforestation? Or even the UK, you're going to get told off because you're pumping all this raw sewage into, yeah. into the sea. I would say, you I mean, in terms of this nice idea of the world police, <laughs> um, United Nations, I suppose, is meant to have a little bit of a role there. But um, 
what I would say is, you're right, the consumers, us as individuals, us shouting about things, that, that can have some influence, definitely. The louder we talk about things, the more we ask difficult questions. I think that's a theme that comes through. Um, I think what's a real shame and a real concern is the, the, it's so murky and opaque around information. How are we accessing the right information? Who can we trust? And thankfully, next episode, Simon, what do you think we should be discussing? Um, your grandparents and what they did next? No, the media. Ah, of course, the big bad media, of which, of course, we are members of. The big bad media? You see, that's exactly what drives me bananas. You know, the media is such a broad term. It's, it's you know, there's good, there's bad, there's ugly, there's everything within it. So I think we need to look at the media. <laughs> <laughs>